Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me then in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 11, as we will be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Inspired and inerrant word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, usually because of the type of literature that we're dealing with and these, these big visions, we're oftentimes somewhat forced to take large chunks at once. But here, we ought to take much joy and delight in seeing that this morning we're only going to deal with two verses. We're just going to consider two verses this morning which ought to be a, a nice change for us. But these two verses we need to see are important as they help to set up the remainder of this interlude that we will read in the weeks to follow. Yet, we also are not to just read these two verses in isolation from what has just come before it. I remember last week in chapter 10, what are we told? We're told that John is given this little scroll And John is told to eat the scroll. And as John consumes the scroll, he tastes the the sweetness of the words upon his mouth. But he also experiences the the bitterness of that little scroll in his belly. And then in verse 11, John is told this, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What we need to understand is that this command isn't just a command for John. John is really representative of the, of the larger church who likewise have this call right, to, to prophesy to the nations. And so what is John told though? He's, do, he's told to know the Word. That's what it demonstrates in, in his eating of it. To know the Word. To, to live the Word. To experience the Word. And only then could the prophet go forth and proclaim the Word of salvation and judgment to the nations. But this is also recorded for us as well, and, and for everyone who follows after the pattern of John. Right? This is what Christ expects of His church until He returns. That we feed upon His Word. That we live upon His Word. That His Word lives in us. That we digest His Word. So that we too can go forth into the world proclaiming salvation and judgment to the nations. Now, in John's day though, this may have seemed to be something that would be difficult to accomplish. Because remember that in the first century here, they are dealing with much opposition and persecution. We read about this in chapters 2 and 3, didn't we? They are dealing with the opposition of the Roman authorities who were saying, confess Caesar as Lord or die. 
They were dealing with Jewish opposition, right? Those who belong to the synagogue of Satan who were persecuting the believing Jews. They were dealing with the opposition of their pagan neighbors, right? Their, their pagan co-workers who would say, you have to participate in these uh, trade guild festivals where we serve these pagan deities or we're going to go turn you into the Roman authorities. They also were experiencing opposition from within the church. Right? Opposition wasn't just coming from without. It was coming from within. Like the Nicolaitans and, and those who in the church followed after the teaching of Jezebel. And so they're dealing with all this opposition, all of this persecution, threats of, of death, threats of loss of livelihood. And so they must have thought, many of them to themselves, right? how in the world are we going to accomplish that prophetic call that the Lord has called us to in the midst of all of this opposition, in the midst of all of this persecution. And it's here, brothers and sisters, in chapter 11, that we have the answer to the how. It is here, in chapter 11, that the church is to be encouraged in their day, just as it ought to be an encouragement to us in our day, as we as the church press on after John's calling in the mission of the church, which is to continue to proclaim salvation and judgment to the world until Christ returns. But now knowing, through the revelation that we have today, how God will enable us to accomplish the task that He has set forth before His church, which is revealed to us in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Now, it's in these first two verses, though, that we see these texts that are at the center of much debate within Christian circles. Right? These two verses are, are hotly debated, and there are really three prominent ways in which Christians understand verses 1 and 2. And so I'm going to just briefly outline those three prominent views for us so that we kind of have that as the background moving forward. And so the, the first view, and maybe the most popular, at least in American evangelical circles, would be what we might call the, the futurist literal approach. Right? The futurist literal approach. Uh, this viewpoint would see verses 1 and 2 as describing something that is going to occur in the future. Right, this is going to occur during the tribulation just prior to the return of Christ. Okay, so all of this that's being described is future. Now what this futurist literal approach likewise will see is that the temple is literal. It's a literal physical temple. Right, a literal altar. A literal Jerusalem with now ethnic believing Jews who are worshipping inside of this rebuilt temple. Now, some of the objections to this viewpoint uh, are this. First is, we have to ask ourselves, who is this book being written to? Right? It's being written to first century saints who are being persecuted. And so it's being written as an encouragement to them. Right? Telling them how they are to press on in the face of what is, what is transpiring. Also telling them from a heavenly perspective what all is happening, why it's happening, you know, what the church must be doing in the midst of it. And so if it isn't written to them and it's written only to people in the future, then, then what meaning do these words have? 
We have to ask ourselves, if, if it's only for future during the tribulation, when the church isn't even here anyway, what meaning does it have for any of us today as well? So that's one objection. Another objection would be this. That at the outset of Revelation chapter 1, John already tells us the manner in which we are to understand and interpret this book. Right? And that is symbolically. Right? That is figuratively. Right? Remember, John alludes back to Daniel chapter 2 in the first three verses of chapter uh, 1 of Revelation. And what does he refer to? He refers to a, a vision Daniel had. And later on in chapter 2, Daniel interprets that vision. And remember, does Daniel interpret that vision literally? Nope. Daniel interprets that vision symbolically or figuratively. Those things that he had his vision of right, represented some other reality. And that's why he, he then points us, he alludes to Daniel 2 at the very opening of Revelation 1.1 to teach us from the very outset how we are to interpret the book of Revelation moving forward. And so we would say, one objection would be, well, we're not taught to interpret this book literally. We are taught to interpret it symbolically or, or figuratively. Right? These are visions depicting spiritual realities. Right? So we're not to take them literally. And then one final objection might be this. In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. But after that, He never, ever talks about the rebuilding of the temple. Right? Or the necessity for the temple to ever be erected again. Right? And so, so those are some maybe main objections to this futurist literal approach. Now, the second view that we'll look at is a view called the preterist view. Right? The preterist view. And in one way, it is very much like the futurist literal approach. And that's in, and that's in this sense. Remember I said the futurist literal approach sees everything that it is talking about in the future. Well, the preterist view we might call a past literal approach. And that they see what is described here in verses 2 as all past. Right? It's already happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in the fall of the temple in 70 AD. Now, one objection to this viewpoint, one that we've already covered before, is that they argue that the book of Revelation then has to be written prior to 70 A.D. And so the objection would say, well, the overwhelmingly majority of scholarship disagrees with that. They reject that premise. And they, they argue for a, an early to mid-90s uh, writing of the book of Revelation based not only on uh, the, the words of early church fathers who attest that it was written in the mid-90s, uh, but also to the, the internal testimony of the text as well. Uh, one other additional objection to this uh, preterist view or preterist reading of, of verses 1 and 2 is this, that the preterist interpretation is not a consistent one here in verses 1 and 2. Right? It's not a consistent one. There's an inconsistent application of the text. At any time that we have to interpret something inconsistently, it ought to at least raise a red flag and cause us to question our approach and ask ourselves, perhaps, is there a better approach? And this is what I mean by that. Generally speaking, the, the preterist view will, will view the temple as the church. 
The temple's the church here. The outer court are unbelieving Jews. But when we get to the holy city, now that's Jerusalem. That's literal. And so we see there that it is a, an inconsistent interpretation of the symbols here. One proponent of this position, uh, Douglas Kelly, says this. He, he agrees with this. He says, This passage foretells how God would let unbelieving Jerusalem be trodden under 42 months. And so he sees Jerusalem's literal. 42 months is literal by the Gentiles. But he has John measure the saints, which is the temple. Right? All of a sudden, it turns to a, a figurative understanding of the temple, but a literal understanding of, of, the saint, of the saints here as the temple, and a literal understanding of Jerusalem in the 42 months. And so we see there an inconsistent approach to the text. And so those will be a, a couple objections to the preterist viewpoint. The third viewpoint, though, would be the one that, that we have been consistently using throughout the book of Revelation. And that is viewing what is described for us as figurative. Right? This is symbolic language that John is given. He sees visions and he, he sees pictures that communicate a reality. And this is a reality, though, that is true for the first century church. And so it is past in many respects. But likewise, brothers and sisters, we understand that what is being said is likewise true of the present and will likewise be true of the future until the coming of Christ. Right? This is describing what is going on. It is depicting what is happening throughout the entire church age so that we see the measuring of the temple, the altar, the 42 months, the holy city as figurative in meaning, yet communicating something very true to the church in all ages. Right? Not to be understood literally, but rather symbolically or, or figuratively. But even with that being said, as I've, as I've said on many occasions, if we want to be sticklers, right, we can say that it's really us who interprets this book literally. Right? Not the future literalist or the past literalist. It's really us. And when we say that, then what do we mean? We, we interpret it literally in interpreting it figuratively. Because we interpret it after the manner in which it was given to us to be read. And so, it was given to us to be read figuratively. And so, that is how we interpret the text. And we'll see what this consistent approach to the text then reveals to us as we look at our three points this morning. And so, our three points are this. Point number one will be the measuring rod. The measuring rod. Point number two will be the temple. The temple. And point number three will be the 42 months. The 42 months. So point one, the measuring rod. Now in verse one, John immediately is given this measuring rod and he's told to measure a bunch of things, one of which is people. This ought to be a clear indicator for us right away that what is being written is not meant to be read literally, but figuratively. John is not being asked to go around with a measuring rod and, and, and measure everything that he sees in his sight, including people. And so we have to ask ourselves, right then, as we've done throughout all of the book of Revelation, as we come to these symbols, what does the symbol of the measuring rod mean to convey to God's people? 
what does he want us to learn and to know from this symbol? What is he meaning to communicate to his church? And for that, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to go turn back to the Scriptures. And we're going to look and we're going to find other places where the measuring rod is used and see what did it mean to communicate, what, what was meant to communicate to the church at those times and in those moments. And so for that, uh, one particular text that sits in the background of our own text is Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Now what I'm not going to do is ask you to turn to Ezekiel 40 and read all nine chapters. But what we are going to do is we're just going to, we're going to just look at, at, at one section real quick to help us to understand what the measuring of the temple is, is meaning to convey to us. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 44. Turn to Ezekiel 44 and we will uh, begin in verse 1. So Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44, beginning at verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened. And no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face, and the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I should tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all of your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised and hardened flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. Right? You have broken my covenant in addition to all of your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord your God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols, when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. Now, G.K. Beale, in his commentary, in the New International Greek Testament commentary, says this, Measuring then, right, Remember, Ezekiel is told to measure this temple. Measuring secured both the inner and outer courts against the contamination of Israel's former abominations. Namely, unbelievers worshipping false gods in the sanctuary and priests participating in idol worship in the sanctuary. And so it means this, right? The, the act of measuring is symbolic of security and protection. 
Right? That is what the act of measuring is symbolic of. Security and protection. Right? What we just read about here is the protection of the temple from contamination. Right? From the abominations of those who would pollute it with their idol worship. We read this very same thing, this very same idea in the book of Zechariah. Turn with me in Zechariah as well to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. And remember, Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 2. And we'll start here at verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what it's width and what it is in length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet me and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord and I will be the glory of her midst. Do you see? He was, he was going to go measure to erect walls of protection. But instead, what is he told? He's told, don't do it. Why? Because God Himself will be the protection that Israel needs. Right? That is what's being said here. So we see measuring and protection here going hand in hand. It's the very same thing we see in the book of Revelation as well. In Revelation chapter 21. Turn over with me there, please. In Revelation 21, as John sees heavenly Jerusalem coming down, what do we read in verse 12? It had a great high wall with twelve gates. Now what are these walls and gates needed for? What are they symbolic of? Right, the keeping in that which is holy and the keeping out that which is defiled. Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And so, brothers and sisters, these examples, and with many others, what we need to see is that the measuring and visions oftentimes conveys God's protection of His people. That is what is being conveyed to us here. It demonstrates your security in the Lord. In In chapter 21 of 27, look down just a few verses later. By nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is measuring the city meant to convey there? That inside the city will only dwell God's people. Outside the city is protected by these symbolic walls so that the pollution and contamination of the ungodly can never get inside. 
You are protected. You are secure in the Lord. Right? This is what measuring represents in the, in the heavenly city. And what we need to see that, that same measuring, that same protection, we receive in part here and now as well. This is why that although the, the governments of the world oppose the Christian faith, right, our own government is now making many laws, right, in opposition to, to the Christian faith, right, even though, right, Hollywood and all of our entertainment, for the most part, opposes, right, the Christian faith as it tries to brainwash our children with such garbage, right, even though the morality of this world opposes Christian morality, Brothers and sisters, we can know that, that as we are in this world, that we dwell securely and safely, that we have the Lord's protection as well, even though all the world is against us. And how can we know this? Well, because we have the presence of the Lord. Right? He is protecting us against all that opposes us in the world. Right? His presence is with His people. That too is what the measuring is meant to convey to us. Right? That the Lord is with us. His presence is amongst us. So that He is assuring His people that our faith will not fail in the presence of persecution and suffering that no one will be able to poison nor contaminate it or draw us away from the Father. Right? That the believer, the true believer, will never become an unbeliever. Right? That you are protected and safe in the arms of the Lord. Right? This then is the message that is being conveyed to the, the first century church through the, the measuring rod. Right? God promises to the first century church and to everyone that comes after, your salvation is secure. Your salvation is secure no matter what threats of violence come upon you. No matter if they take your life, your salvation is secure. You are spiritually protected by the Lord. Your faith will be upheld by my holy presence. And what is described here, likewise, brothers and sisters, is something that we've read about already. This is paralleled elsewhere for us in the book of Revelation. And it shouldn't surprise us, as we've said on numerous occasions, these are, these are parallel visions. So where do you think we've heard this exact same thing before? How about in chapter 7, in the first interlude? Remember, as the angels are, are holding back God's judgments, what are, where are they told? Right? The other angel comes and says, wait, wait, wait. God's people must first be sealed. And what did we say that sealing was? It was God's spiritual protection of the church in the midst of persecution and suffering. And it's the exact same thing that we see here in the second interlude. It shouldn't surprise us that the first interlude came before the six, came after the sixth seal judgment and before the seventh seal judgment. The second interlude, which is describing the exact same thing, comes after the sixth trumpet judgment and before the seventh trumpet judgment. And so here in these verses, the church is put on notice. Persevere until the end. Fulfill your calling as the church to be that prophetic voice in the world. And you will be able to accomplish that task. You know why? Because of what we're told here in verse 1. Because of what we are told in verse 1. Because you have the promise of your covenant Lord that He will keep you no matter what may happen to you. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens, 
we have the presence of the Lord and the spiritual protection of the Lord. And so it is because of those two things the church will fulfill its prophetic calling to proclaim the gospel to the nations and shall never fail. You need to understand that. And you may say, well, okay, well, even if the the measuring is, is God's protection, as you say, they're told to measure a temple. And isn't the temple what they're told to protect? Isn't, isn't the temple where we're told oftentimes in Scripture where God's presence dwells? Isn't that what's meant here? Well, that leads us into our second point then this morning, which is the temple. Our second point is the temple. Now, in the New Testament, the new temple is often described as being the church. In the New Testament, the temple is often being described as the church. And there is no debate here. Right? There is no debate, but just uh, to, to provide you a, you know, a few examples to demonstrate what I'm saying, uh, we can look at a text like 1 Corinthians 3.16. Right? Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. After describing the inclusion of the Gentiles, who were once aliens and strangers into the people of God, describing how now they have been brought into the household of faith, built upon the prophets and the apostles and the chief cornerstone who is Christ, we are told this in verse 22. In whom, that is Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. And so what we need to see that when John is told to go and measure the temple, what he's being told to do is go and measure the Christian community. Right? Go and measure the people of God. That is what the, the, that is what the, the vision is symbolic of. Right, the protection, the measuring of God's people. And then recall this as well as we think about this more and more. Recall from the Old Testament, whenever that phrase, the temple of God is used, what does that refer to? Right, it refers to the place where God's presence was uniquely present on earth. Right, The temple of God was the place where God's Unique presence was on earth. And so what we need to understand, what we need to see in the symbol that we are given, is God's unwavering spiritual protection of His people who now have the unique presence of the Lord with them. Right? No longer is His unique presence with a temple, with a building, but is with the people of God. And isn't this what Jesus was communicating to the woman at the well? This is exactly what he was telling her. In John chapter 4, verse 20, we read this. She says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus replies, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Right? Then in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
Do we not see? It is so abundantly clear that God is not calling for a restoration of a temple. He is not calling for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He's not calling for that at all. Ask yourselves, even as we, as we think about this together, what was the primary purpose for the temple? Animal sacrifice. That was the primary purpose for the temple. Animal sacrifice. Which what? The author of the Hebrews says what? The author to the Hebrews tells us that it was Christ's sacrifice that typologically fulfilled and abolished the sacrificial system, thus abolishing the purpose of the temple forever. I mean, look at Hebrews 9 and 10 if you don't believe me. Right? Read, read Hebrews 9 and 10. It says exactly that. Christ's sacrifice did what the blood of bulls and goats was incapable of doing. He was Himself the final sacrifice for sin for all time. And in fact, I submit this to you, that to desire a rebuilt temple is not Christian at all. In fact, it is Jewish. To desire a rebuilt temple is not Christian at all. It is Jewish. Especially in light of of what Scripture teaches us, that the destruction of the temple was God's judgment upon the Israelites for the rejection of the Messiah. I mean, do you not understand, brothers and sisters, that the physical temple was an impediment to their faith in Christ, who was the true temple, who was standing before them, but they could not see Him because they were so focused on the physical temple that it had to be torn down so that we might see Jesus Christ, the true temple, who stood before them, who told them with His very own words that He was the true temple. Remember in John chapter 2, verse 19, what did He say? Destroy this temple in three days I will lift it up. And then in verse 21, He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about His body, which is the temple. When at Christ's crucifixion, we're told that that temple veil is torn in two, we need to see that that signified the presence of God leaving that house for good and leaving it to be desolate forever, never to be filled with His glorious presence again. No more is His glorious presence to be confined to a temple building, but now His glorious presence is with the true temple, which is the body of Christ and the people of God. That is why John can say later in Revelation 21, that he doesn't see a temple in the city anymore. But then he goes on to say that the, the temple is God and the Lamb. Well, that's because when he says, I don't see a temple, he's saying, I don't see a physical temple. Right? Because the Lord God Almighty and Jesus Christ are the temple who now fill all things by their glorious presence as we uh, enter into the, into the communion and fellowship with the Lord in heaven. And it's this distinction, brothers and sisters, that I want us also to see that it's only the the temple proper that is to be measured. It's only the temple proper that is to be measured. Right? That's where the altar of incense is kept. Right? That's where we're told that the the presence of the Lord resided in the in the temple proper. Only that was to be measured. Only that was symbolized as having God's protection in God's presence. 
But they're told, don't measure the outer courts. Right? Why is that? Right? Why are they not to measure the outer courts? What is that meant to convey to us? Well, think back. What is, what is a problem that is going on in these first century churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3? False believers. Right? False believers. Right? Nicolaitans, those who followed after the teaching of, of Jezebel, coming in, right? promoting heresy and false doctrine and false practice. So that what is signified by not measuring the outside of the courts is to say this, right? that those unbelievers who may be in the church do not have God's promise of protection nor the promise of God's presence. And in fact, they are left open to the wiles of Satan. The Lord gives them up to the devil to be attacked and to be had because their souls do not belong to the Lord. They do not belong to the temple, but rather they stand outside of the temple. Although they are associated with the temple, they do not belong to the temple. Right? That's what we need to see here. Those outside the court are those who Jesus tells us will come to Him in the last day. Lord, Lord, didn't I? And He will say, depart from Me. For I never knew you. Those are the ones who stand outside the court. See that this is further brought out for us in the measuring of the temple. Excuse me, in the measuring of the altar. The altar refers to how we worship God today. Right? Christians are not only a temple. What else are we? We are also priests. And it's the priests who did what? who stood near the altar and offered sacrifices to the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, this is how the true believer who has God's presence and protection lives his life before the Lord. He lives as a priest before the Lord every day of his life, offering sacrifices upon the altar to his God. Now, how so? Well, the author to the Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 says this, Through Him that is Christ, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? You see, those who are false, those who are temporary, right, cannot offer a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to God, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so it is only they who have been made a temple and been made priests who have promised God's protection in God's presence. While those who may claim the name of the Lord, who may come to church every Sunday faithfully, yet who do not belong to Him, our Lord rejects and gives over to the evil one. He gives them over to the world. And so let us see this, brothers and sisters. Drawing near to the Lord externally is not enough. It is not enough. External religion will grant to you no blessing or no reward in this life. Right? We need to see that, that those who stand outside the temple are the ones we read about earlier in chapters 8 and 9. The ones who are deceived by the locusts. Those who have ultimately turned away from Christ and will become lovers of the world. And yet, at the same time, we have to ask, well, what is the difference? For we all once were lovers of the world. 
Right? So what is the difference between the true believer and the false believer? What is the difference between the one who stands inside the temple and outside the temple? Right? How do I get to the temple? How do I get to the altar? How can I approach that altar? It is only through Christ. Right? It is only through Christ. Right? How can I enter into the presence of the Lord? It is only through Christ. For by His blood, He did secure for us all good things to come. By His blood, He secured for us eternal redemption. By His blood, we've been purified from dead works so that we might be willing and able to serve the living God. It is only those to whom God has consecrated through the death of His Son who can now come before the Lord, approach the altar, and offer up these spiritual sacrifices every single day of our lives. Right? Which ought to characterize the, the life of God's people. Those who are being built up into this temple of God, not made with hands. And for everyone who stands outside the court, they are given up to this world. To a world that will trample the holy city for 42 months. And this leads us to our third and our final point, which is the 42 months. Now, how are we to understand the 42 months? With our consistent approach to the text, which is figuratively, as we've been interpreting all the numbers that we've read about in the book of Revelation. Additionally, I think, brothers and sisters, when we understand, when we wrap our mind around this, that these figures, 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times and a half a time, or three and a half years, are all of equal period. Right? They're equivalent. And so, when we understand that, that these are used in Daniel, in Revelation, they're used differently, right? The, one says 42 months, one says 1260 days. I think it ought to help us to understand and wrap our minds around the fact that it's not describing something literal but rather something figurative. is trying to communicate some reality to us. Also remember this, that throughout Scripture, God doesn't want us to know the time. He doesn't want us to know the time. He constantly says, it's not for you to know the time of the season. And you ought to thank God for that. It's to your benefit that you don't know the time. Why? Because it's, that's what keeps you spiritually alert. That's what keeps you spiritually awake. Right, ready at any moment for the Lord to return. Right, if you knew 41 months has passed, one more, one more month before Christ returns, now I'm going to really be a good Christian. Right? That would do us no benefit. Right? We know that we would, we would be lazy. We'd be slothful Christians if we knew the, the, the time and the date. And so it is so good that we don't. We have to thank the Lord. But now, what is, what is behind this 42 months? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it foretells the tribulation of the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrated the temple in the mid-2nd century B.C. And how long are we told it would last? A time, times, and half a time. There we have our 42 months, or our 3.5 years, or our 1260 days. So that what we need to see is that that 42 number is figurative for the period of tribulation prophesied by the prophet Daniel where God's people will be kept safe. That's what we need to understand the 42 months being. Right, this is going to be a time of tribulation upon God's people in which God will protect and keep safe His people. See this likewise in the book of Revelation itself. 
Look with me at chapter 12, verse 6. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Here we read, And the, the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Look down at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. It might be helpful that I tell you that the the woman here is the church. The woman here is the church. So what is it describing for us? The entirety of the church age, as we live under the protection of the Lord, while we are attacked and assaulted from Satan, his minions, and the world. That's exactly what is being described here. That is exactly what is being described here. And that also then tells us this, that the holy city described for us in verse 2, that will be trampled for 42 months, is not Jerusalem, but it is the people of God. The holy city is the people of God. You say, well, where do you get that from? Revelation 21, as John sees heavenly Jerusalem come down from the, the skies, what does he call heavenly Jerusalem? He calls heavenly Jerusalem the holy city. Now, follow with me as we make these connections. Where is your citizenship today? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? So that right now, every single believer here today belongs to and is a member of the holy city. That's what's being described here. God is saying, you are members of that holy city, but I will measure you out. I will protect you. My presence will be with you as the world attacks you and assails you so that you may fulfill the prophetic call that I have called you to. That you may accomplish your task of proclaiming the Gospel to the nations and that you will fulfill your calling. That's what the message is in verses 1 and 2. That's what the message is. This is God's message to the church who wonders. right? How can we fulfill this task that you have called us to when all the world seems to be stacked against us? Jesus says, because my presence is with you. That's how you can, because you belong to me. That's how you will fulfill your call, because I will protect you and my presence will be with you. So don't worry, right? Don't fret what the world will do. You will accomplish my will. That's what he's saying. Realize also, brothers and sisters, that the number seven, the number seven, we said, is a number of completion, right? It's a number of perfection. And so what I think also that number 3.5, which is what 42 months is, conveys to us, is a lack of perfection. It conveys to us the failure of the enemy. That they cannot perfectly attain their goal. 
right? That their goal will be thwarted. That it will be cut short. That they will not be able to fulfill their task. They cannot hurt the souls of God's people. Right? We might be physically attacked, but they cannot destroy the church. They cannot destroy the church. And so I think likewise, the number 42 also conveys to us a definite period of time. Right? One that does not last forever. Right? One that will end. And so we need to see this 42 months is describing that 1260 days that we'll read about in Revelation 12. The time, times and a half a time is describing the church age. Right? What is going on during this entire church age? It is we who in our... Excuse me. There's one other thing that I want us to see as we start to, to draw to a close. And that is one other thing that, that this 3.5 uh, ought to draw our minds toward. And that is also the comparison it has with Christ. Okay? Many scholars say that Christ's ministry was approximately 3.5 years. That Christ's ministry was approximately 3.5 years. So that this is meaning to convey to us even a greater reality as such. Right? It is we, the church, as we suffer over the time, times, and half a time, over those 42 months, that we, in our suffering, be identify ourselves with Christ in His suffering over His 3.5 years. Right? Remember, it was Christ who came proclaiming the Word. And then it was Christ who faced opposition and persecution and death. And the world rejoiced at His death and they thought they had defeated Christ. But no, He rose from the grave. He was vindicated and exalted and entered into glory through suffering. Brothers and sisters, that is to be the experience of the church. That is the call to John. To proclaim the Word. To face opposition. To face persecution. To face death. But brothers and sisters, know that you will be vindicated. That you will be resurrected. And you, through your suffering, like Christ, will enter into glory. That's what we need to see likewise by these 42 months or this 3.5 years. And we're going to see that brought out more next week as we look at the two witnesses. Because that's what those two witnesses convey to us. That reality. Right? But if you are His brothers and sisters, if you belong to the Lord, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear no matter how hostile this world continues to turn towards Christians. The message is clear for all of us though. We must draw near to God through His Son. Trusting His Son. Looking to the blood of Jesus Christ. And by His grace, live unto our calling as saints. Every day offering up ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to our Lord. Knowing that in doing so, you will dwell safely in His presence. Having His protection from all that assails you. That tries to rip you from the Father's hand. They cannot do it. This brings us back to our reading of the Gospel. Right? Fear not what man can do to your body. Right? They will fail because as we read in God's Word today, He has His, His will for His church. And so He must accomplish His will. He, he will accomplish His will. He will not fail for Christ comes beside the church and He holds the church's hand and He protects and He walks alongside the church. And He will bring us to the finish line and ultimately He will bring us to glory. And so as we close then this morning, the question is this. 
that you are to ask yourselves, am I a Christian in name only? Am I a Christian in name only? Or have I been redeemed by the blood of Christ? Is is He my Savior and does He now protect me? And if you can answer that you are Christ, then know, brothers and sisters, that you have been measured by God. You have been measured already. He knows who you are. You are being spiritually kept and protected by the Lord. Although you belong to the heavenly city on earth right now, and you suffer, there's going to come a time when suffering will give way to eternal glory. When Christ returns to bring about total and complete victory for all belong, who belong to Him and to all who bear witness to His name. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We thank You that You reveal these, these treasures and these truths to people such as ourselves. We thank You that You give us all 66 books of the Bible and not just the book of Revelation so that we might be able to understand the book. That we may be able to look to the other symbols and find them throughout Your Scriptures. That we might come to a true and right understanding of the book of Revelation. So Father, we are so thankful for Your Word and the, and the entirety of the whole counsel of God. We pray, Father, this day that You would Help us to to meditate upon these realities that we have learned this morning and to to come to You in thankfulness, knowing that we have been measured by God, that we have God's protection as His church, that God has promised to us His presence as His body, and that He will not allow the world to overtake us, and that the suffering that we must endure is only for a short time. And so, Lord, we ask that You would cause us to look forward to glory in the day when Christ returns where all suffering will give way to eternal happiness with Christ. And so, Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.